there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Right. Which one are we doing first? Derby's. I'd vote for Derby's. Correct. This is Colin Schindler welcoming you back to a second series of Football Ruined My Life. And joining me today are, as usual, John Holmes and Paddy Barkley. Together we'll be looking at one of the great phenomena of modern British, well, British football as we all understand it. We're going to be talking about derby matches. I will just start off with a very quick anecdote before I bring the two of them in, which is that I think I've made it quite clear to everybody my current disillusion with the game and with my own club. And it's very odd that when Manchester City play, I don't know, Stoke City or Watford or even Liverpool, to be honest, I really don't give much credence to the idea that this is important. Put 11 people in red coming out on the pitch, <laughs> coming against us, and the whole thing completely changes. The two matches I watch, and I watch all 90 minutes live, are the two derby matches. They seem to inhabit a different universe. And my question, therefore, to Paddy and to John, let's start with you, Paddy, is, yeah. is it just me, or is, are the derby matches really just different from anything else that we play? I've always loved them. I mean, I think of Sheffield Wednesday 4, Sheffield United nil, Terry Curran match, known in South Yorkshire as the Boxing Day Massacre. I think of going to Belgrade for a derby. I think of derbies, derbies. You know, I, I could go on all night about derbies, but to go back to Manchester, you were saying it, it gives you a special edge when it's your blues against those reds. It's not just you, because the mildest mannered player I ever saw in a Manchester City shirt was called Alan Oakes, and you will know and love him. He was part of that great Mercer Allison team that came up and did so well, won the European Cup Winners' Cup and the league. I remember going to a derby at Old Trafford once, and Alan Oakes, the mildest man I ever saw, was so angry at the combination of Dennis Law being such a nasty little bastard and the derby atmosphere that the most extraordinary fight took place. He was swinging haymakers. It was like a windmill. Even Dennis must have thought, I should not have started this. I really should not have started this. I don't think anybody was booked, by the way. I think the referee just said, now, come on. I know it's a derby, but but that, to me, summed up the, the Manchester derby. I've seen so many great ones. I, sorry to keep going on. I'll just tell one more story. Billy McNeil, as you know, was the manager of City back in the... You'd be able to give me the 87. 87. 87. And he said to me, I, I love the derbies because we're always the underdogs. And it was the same at Celtic. 
Billy McNeil was at Celtic for nine years and they won nine titles in a row. He said, we never went into a game against Rangers feeling the top dogs, even though we'd maybe won eight leagues in a row and the European Cup. We still felt a little bit inferior to them. And he said, I feel that. I can smell that at Main Road as well, which was the, the grand And John, do you feel, you know, stuck as you are between Nottingham and Leicester? And Coventry Do you feel deprived that you haven't really got a derby in the way I've got a derby? No. You know, it's oh, all right. Do you think you do have a derby, then? I suppose the origins of the song, We Hate Nottingham Forest, were Leicester were televised, and, of course, they sang We Hate Nottingham Forest. But if you go to Forest... They quite like Leicester. They just hate Derby. <laughs> it's all struck me as rather pointless, to be absolutely honest. You know, with Coventry, they did on some website some list of the top Derby matches, and they called it the M69 Derby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? We're better than the rest anyway. So I just don't... It's not well, for there me. There speaks a man who has been deprived of a Derby. If you had a Derby, you'd know about it. I looked up the history before we're doing this and the various origins are put to it. One was that it was to do with bottle kicking in Ashbourne uh, and the <laughs> river that divides the town. Right. The other was that Everton and Liverpool, that the park between the two grounds was owned by Lord Derby. And these, to me, seem to have nothing to do. If yeah. you'd have said to me when I was a child, what is the Derby? I'd have actually said the horse race. And actually, interestingly, the Derby as a horse race has diminished in importance no end. If you watch these old films, and we all three of us probably watch this talking pictures from time to time. Oh, yeah. There are films on about race, and they always end up at the Derby, and millions of people went, and people went out. But the Derby's now gone. But if you now said to kids, what is the Derby? They would talk about football matches, I have no doubt. But it's all over Europe. I mean, there are lots of key matches, not necessarily local derbies. Is it Juventus, Milan is called the derby? Well, no, no, AC, well, they're not AC the same Inter. city. That can't be a derby. Yes, exactly. No, no, it can in other countries. I'm trying to think of the example, but there, there is definitely well, one. Well, the, the obvious example, Paddy, is the Classico. I mean, that's the hatred. Yes, but the Classico is called the Classico, and their Classico is Dortmund against Bayern. But... There is, I should really have looked this up before we did this podcast, but there is a match in, I think, Italy, which doesn't involve teams from the same city, although the Inter against Milan is called a derby, but also, I think Juventus... Is it Lazio and Roma? But that's the same city. That's the same mm. stadium. No, there is another one. Anyway, I'll look it up. And I think these, these clashes, as to where they come from, why they're named. Yeah. If you look at Celtic and Rangers, which ah. is the one I was aware of, yes. that Derby's... is down to religious bigotry. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But Derby's the... too soft a word for that. Correct. You know, to call Manchester United Liverpool a derby, no, that's no, to do with sort of competition and, and also sort of now become spite. The thing that does strike me is this Everton and Liverpool was once known as the friendly, friendly derby, derby yeah. but now they all get sent off. Yeah. <laughs> they do. Ah, as you know, this podcast provides us all with a team of researchers and mine have just come up <laughs> with the Derby d'Italia, the Derby of Italy, is the name of the football derby between Inter and Juventus. The term was coined back in 1967 by the famous Italian sports journalist, who John, you may have known, Gianni Brera. 
and it's the equivalent of Spain's Clásico, which again right. is from teams from different cities. Right. That's France, political. Yes. And is. France's Le Classique, which I guess is between Marseille and Paris. So there we are. The interesting thing about that, the bit you've mentioned, is the Barcelona and Real Madrid game, which I have been to, that is down to political and it goes back to the Spanish Civil War. Yes. And in no sense would, for instance, Barcelona against Espanyol, which is an interesting concept because people may or may not know, why is a side in Barcelona called Espanyol, which I, Spain, they were a side created by Franco, in effect, to rival Barcelona because Barcelona had come to signify an expression of the Catalan nation. But that was never really a competition. Although Espanol's title is now spelt in Catalan and not Spanish, because it used to be E-S-B-A-N-O-L, yeah. Just as an aside, when Gary arrived, Gary Lineker arrived yeah. in Barcelona and left his hotel first time to go to training, he got into a cab and said, football ground in as much Spanish as he knew at that point mm. and ended up at the Espanol <laughs> up at the top. But a lot of these sort of things have become part of either political or religious expression. The yes. derby I've been to, which was the noisiest, yeah. was one between Beziktas yeah. and Fenerbahce. And the crowds arrived two hours before the start banged drums, rattled, sang, mad for two hours. And then when the game started, they were all knackered. They were really quiet. <laughs> what about the players? The players are equally knackered. No, the players were sort of indifferent. Got... Well, the, the whole point about a derby match when it starts is always that the players go at each other hell for leather, yeah, right correct. from the kickoff. There's no messing about. There is complete commitment right from the off. And even the foreigners who now play in our local derbies, they get it. They understand that. There was a phase when you know more foreign players came in. A lot of them got themselves sent off in derbies as a sort of way of introducing themselves <laughs> to the fans, you know. Instead um, of kissing the badge. Instead yeah. of kissing the badge, exactly. <laughs> Kiss the other guy's shin pads, you know. <laughs> Well, let, let me just haul it back for a moment and, and start at what I think is the beginning of, of this discussion, which is what John pointed out. A lot of the clubs that began in, say, the 1890s, at the end of the 19th century, they come out of the churches. Even Liverpool and Everton, perhaps to a lesser extent, and Manchester to a lesser extent, because City were a Protestant church, United had this very strong Catholic background. It didn't really percolate through to the crowd of the game when I was growing up, but I was aware it existed. But going back to where it did matter was Glasgow. I remember once going, but this was before there were away fans, and, and my team, Dundee, was playing Rangers at Ibrox, and for some reason, somebody organised a coach. So 30 Dundee fans went down to Rangers. You were standing in a crowd of 60,000, I would imagine, at Ibrox. And we were in awe of those two clubs because there's a Riverside Drive in Dundee. And every Saturday morning, there'd be 100 coaches bedecked in either green or blue going out of Dundee to whichever the old firm team was playing at home. So we were in awe of these super clubs. And anyway, I went there. And I was so excited to be going to an away match that I wore this new suit that I'd had designed in those days. For about a fiver, you could design your own suit. Predictably, at age 15, I designed this absolute 
catastrophe of her three-piece suit. I thought I looked at the bee's knees, you know. And suddenly, I'm standing there watching the match, and this can hits me on the leg. I thought, oh, no, beer can, you know, hurled by a Rangers fan. And my suit was in green. I'd gone to Ibrox in a green suit. I'm with the Rangers fan. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) You deserve everything you get, Paddy. Uh, Anyway, but, you know, later I went to old firm games and they did have, really, a different kind of a noise, you know, a a noise with an edge on it and hatred. I mean, there were murders in Glasgow on the night of old Mm. firm matches. But, of course, there was a clear religious divide. If you were a Protestant, you could play for Celtic. But if you were a Catholic, you couldn't even get a job in the ticket office at Rangers. You really couldn't. It was Graham Souness, of course, in 1980, mid-1980s, and David Murray, the owner of Rangers, changed all that. And now the fans sing about Feeney and Bastards and, and half their teams, Catholics from Brazil. And... Was it Mo Johnston who was the one to break it? He was, yes. Yeah. First player. Do you know what it was like as being the first? Like he... Jackie Robinson playing baseball. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How was he received? As well, it, it, was, it was the bravest thing. I mean, I think if maybe Mo had been a bit less naive, he wouldn't have done it. I mean, people talk about now, you know, a few gay players are making it clear that they're perfectly happy to talk about their sexuality and play football. But there was always this fear, I think, among gay players and non-gay players that, oh, it's going to be very difficult for the first one to come out. You know, Mm. thank God that's not proved the case. But multiply that by about 12,000 and you get the magnitude of what Mo Johnston did. But fortunately, although there was the hatred there, there wasn't the social media, there wasn't the pairing off, you know, the binary way of looking at things that there is now. So I suppose he had that going for him. But honestly, I cannot believe that if he'd known what he was doing, he would have done it. You know, you referred there, Paddy, to the Rangers Celtic. In Edinburgh, you've got Hibs and Hearts, of course. And it's quite interesting that there was a very prominent and hell of a good player, a fellow called Ian King, who played for Leicester as centre-back yeah, yeah. in a couple of cup finals. Now, he was Scotland schoolboy's captain and then went to Hearts uh-huh. and then was released mysteriously after a year. When I went to his funeral, I found out he was Catholic. Uh-huh. Now, I wonder, was that the reason he was released by Hearts and Leicester got him so easy? It's it's interesting because Hibs were formed for the purposes of Catholic recreation before Celtic. Celtic took the idea from Hibs. So there was, yeah. My understanding certainly is that Hearts and Hibs never had, it was never like the animosity. Bear in mind that East Coast and the West Coast of Scotland are very, very different from that point Mm. of view. Yeah, well, do you remember when, when Paul Gascoigne started playing the flute? You, you know, there was Well, this, that was a good joke. Didn't know what, didn't know what he was doing. It was, a mean, great, it was a great joke. But, of course, there, ah, horror. Exactly. You know, some, obviously, McCoyst or someone had wound him up, you know, and told him, oh, that's what, uh, you know, go down well if you do that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, in Dundee, I mean, Dundee's, you know, even less religiously divided. Dundee United was started as Dundee Hibernia. They were founded in, I think, 1923 or something, and they had an open-door policy. Okay, they were called Hibernian, but if a Protestant in Dundee wanted to play for that club, they were allowed to. So there's really nothing. So why in Glasgow is it so intense? What we're saying is, whatever the local rivalries, it isn't a local hatred, which is clearly what it is in Glasgow. Because the education system in Glasgow, not now, but certainly in those days, 
was faith-led, you know, in the same way as Belfast or yeah. Derry, Londonderry. It was a sort of mini Belfast, Glasgow. And, you know, there were religious riots all over the west of Scotland. You know, when I was researching the life of Matt Busby, as he was growing up, there were massive religious riots in towns like Motherwell and so on. It was a sectarian society. Alex Ferguson's dad was a Protestant Celtic supporter, I think. That's right. And on match day in Govan, and this was even in the 1940s and 50s, he would put on his coat, tuck his Celtic scarf underneath it, and walk to Parkhead. People talk about London derbies and even Manchester derbies. They can be friendly. When I first went to Manchester, there were lots of people, me included, who went to... Uh, Main Road one week and Old Trafford the next. Yes, I got excoriated for admitting that I did that. People my our generation understood completely exactly what you were saying, Paddy. Mm. But of the later generations, they how could you possibly well, even well, go to that place? Exactly. There's a good example of that in Dundee. The Dundee are talking whether they actually do build a new stadium or not, but they're doing a lot of talk about it. And so, of course, there's talk about in that season while it's being built, where would Dundee like? And, and the uh, public opinion among Dundee supporters was canvassed. And the vast majority of them, right in the middle of a cost of living crisis, said they'd rather go to Arbroath, which is I don't know, about 15 miles away, or St. Johnston, both of them relatively small grounds, St. Johnston about 22 miles away. They'd rather go there than walk 100 yards to Tannadice. <laughs> Crackers. It is now so much more tribal. Yeah. Interesting. In Italy, of course, they do share grounds. Yes. But now, of course, we've got this bit about the ground being part of the club's identity. And then Maxwell tried to amalgamate Reading and Oxford. Yeah. And they all went absolutely potty. Yeah. And at one stage, I can remember in the East Midlands, because, you know, Derby ground was terrible. Yeah. The forest ground was and still is pretty terrible. Yeah. And Leicester ground was pretty shocking. And there was talk about building a super ground near the East Midlands Airport. And I actually thought, well, maybe that's the way it's going to go. Mm. But, of course, uproar amongst all the clubs, even to the extent that, and this was when I was chairman of Leicester, there was this idea of we should share it with the rugby club. Bear in mind that in Leicester, the rugby club is probably one of the biggest. It probably is the Manchester United of rugby. But they have a ridiculous ground crammed between two main roads put together with matchsticks and glue. Mm. It's actually bigger now. But in those days, it wasn't. But no, we're not going to do that. There is this feeling now in all sports clubs that we're a gang. We need to have our own headquarters and all this sort of thing. And... This is what we stand for. And it's got worse since television. When uh, talking about, sorry, Colin, may I just make a suggestion yeah. before you move on? That because we're constrained for time, we're going to miss out some great derbies. We might even not talk about Birmingham against Villa and fans running off and punching Jack Grealish and stuff. But I would like to talk just briefly about Newcastle. People say it's a one-club mm. city, but it's mm. not really as close as, say, Chelsea and, and Tottenham. And Tottenham, exactly, is Sunderland. And that's a hell of a derby. That's such a derby that if you lose it, the manager might not survive. How many managers have been sacked after a dying weir derby? 
I mean, Pulitz, the, the obvious example, but there are lots of others. It matters a hell of a lot, and there's a real that there's an edge to that one. Make Didn't no really happen in Nottingham, did it? With Forest and no, Notts no, County. No, even when they were in the same league, yeah. When I first moved to Nottingham, which was around about 1977, both sides were doing okay. Actually, the County were rising up, and obviously Forest were doing really well. But there was no real animosity, to mm. be honest. John and Paddy too. You, you have both had professional dealings with Brian Clough. And if John is telling me that there is a significant rivalry between Forest and, and Derby County, was there a, a sense of betrayal when Clough went to Forest? Oh, massive. Is that what, what Derby County felt? I think that set it off. And of course, what many people don't remember is Derby then tried to get Clough back. Yes. And he was pictured actually having chats at Derby and continued to live in Derby, yet managed Forest. I think the managers do have, well, the significant ones do have an impact. And I'm sorry, this is one of the reasons why I think Busby was a greater man than the one, the Scottish chap who... Yeah, the others, other Scottish. Other Scot- the other, Scot- whatever yeah. his name was. And yeah. I think the reason I feel that is to do with the fact that he changed somehow the atmosphere from what under Busby, it was rivalry, it was important, it was committed... It was frequently violent, the way that George Best broke Glimpardo's leg, but it wasn't full of hatred. And I think, I don't think he did deliberately, but under Ferguson, he created an atmosphere in which hatred and bile became significant elements. It's not the only derby that has that, but it changed the Manchester derby. Do you feel that, Paddy? Yes, I do. And you alluded to the Liverpool-Everton one there. I'm old enough to remember the cars with the blue scarf fluttering out of one side and the red out of the other that genuinely did happen you got Everton fans in the cop at derbies you know and that only sort of went out in the sort of 80s 90s but the Manchester one turned a little bit as you know at the end of Matt's reign in addition to the sourness of the decline of the team there was the sourness of the onset of hooliganism. And in fact, it was a derby that was Matt's last game at Main Road. And Matt, that day, was to become the first man ever to appear twice on This Is Your Life on television. And there was a secret plot hatched by ITV with the police and and everybody in on it. The idea that they were going to present a clock to Matt on the occasion of his last match. But in actual fact... Eamon was going to sneak on with the red book. At the last minute, the police, sensing there's really trouble in the air, said, no, we don't want to make things even worse, and withdrew permission. And it was only after Joe Mercer, Busby's great friend, who he dined with every Saturday night in Chorton Carmody, it was only after Joe Mercer said to the police superintendent, look, if there's any trouble, I will take personal responsibility that the presentation was allowed to go ahead. So there was real fear. And and there were, I've seen photographs, there were mounted police on the perimeter of Main Road that day. So just at the end of Matt's. But bear in mind that Matt's history, he was a former captain of Liverpool. So that wasn't a nasty rivalry at the time. And he was also a former Manchester City player. He wasn't a happy Manchester City player. So he had, you know, he had friendships 
in those clubs. And I suppose that's what we're talking about, the difference. Yes, between... I, I think. I think I, it's also that the Busby and, and Mercer were the sort of managers who sat in the stands yeah. in the director's box right. with their trilby hats on. You see, Paisley's another one. He'd be laughing at, at pillocks like Conte. Yes, exactly. Jumping up and down. Exactly. And trying to get the crowd angry with the players and... A, or the referee, I think, oh, come on, grow up, grow up. And, it would and never have occurred to that would generation never, of managers. Because Matt Busby would rather get a view of the match yeah. than pretend he was a participant in it. Well, the difference between Allison and Mercer was that Allison would, would do that. Mercer would sit in the stand, yeah. have his way at half-time and at full-time, but it was Allison who sat in the dugout and bellowed at everybody, the yeah. linesmen, etc. Yeah. But also at, at Summerby, you know, because Summerby was the nearest player to him. And what Summerby told me was, what, what did he say to you, I kept saying? He just said, take him on, take him on, <laughs> take him on. But it, he was rare. It was much more, that generation was much more collegiate and what changed? Because it's part of society, isn't it? You can't just regard it as just a footballing. A football gives you the evidence that very clearly, visually. Mm. But it's part of a change in British society. It's become more tribal. Is there an element of Americanization in that? Ah, I think that's a very good point. John, what do you think? I think television does this, playing yeah, to yeah. the crowd, doesn't it? Yes. They want to make it a show. I, I mean, interesting. you talk about Malcolm Allison. Before he went to Manchester City, I... I remember watching Leicester play Plymouth in a cup tie in the mid-1960s. And he was manager of Plymouth, wasn't he, before he went up to Manchester And he got sent off there. I mean, he was just a balm cake all the time, wasn't yeah, he, I'm yeah. afraid. Oh, just talking about hate stokers, it would be remiss if we finished without mentioning Sol Campbell. The animosity between Tottenham and Arsenal would be, a, a, I would say... 5%, at least 10, maybe 10, 15% friendlier, but for Sol. Yeah, I think that's probably right. What did he do wrong apart from moving from one club to the other? That's what he did wrong. <laughs> but when Dennis Law came back to Main Road, he was given a wonderful send-off and he was welcomed with open arms. Ter Terry Neal moved from being manager of Tottenham yes. back to Arsenal. Yes. And it didn't cause anything like the hatred factor these things have built up, haven't they? You know, I mean, McLeish, because he was at one West Midlands club and then went to another, Steve Bruce, everywhere he goes, he's been to the rival club, so he starts with his hands tied behind his back. George Graham, when he went to Tottenham after being an Arsenal legend. Yes. You've got to be twice as good, certainly for managers. If you come with baggage, you've got to be very, very good. You've it got to wasn't, win the, win the it wasn't really a factor. Martin O'Neill became a successful manager at... Leicester, having been a player at Forest yeah. and actually turned down approaches from Forest to go back to them. Forest appeared to, I think one of the problems there, of course, was people did turn Forest down subsequently because of, you know, following Clough was yeah. never a great idea and they understood that. But this whole thing has exacerbated. And, you know, there's also this factor about the crowd and the crowd's involvement again. I can remember Atkinson saying about, I think it was when he was at Manchester United, the crowd, you are our 12th man. Yeah. And somebody said at the time, this is stupid. Why are you saying this? You're encouraging them yeah. to behave more aggressively. Yeah. And I've always felt that. I don't like this aggressive crowd behaviour. Support your own side, by all means. But, you know... 
for those fans who now sit in an area of the stand or so stand up in the sitting area mm. next to the opposition fans just to wind them up. Mm. Whereas to start with, I remember going to a game at Chelsea about 1966-67 and we changed ends at half-time. Yes. <laughs> I remember changing ends at half-time, but it was because you wanted to stand behind the because goal that your team was attacking. And you wanted to it, see that It wasn't to wind bulge. up the opposition. Yeah, you wanted no. to see the net bulge under your nose. Yes, yeah, exactly. Course. And yeah, I do remember changing ends at half-time at Dundee. In fact, we did it every week until I realised that watching football from behind the goal was... It's for kids. Making it slightly personal, I have a best friend who has directed the films that I produced and, mm. and, and we're both City supporters. And he has a brother who's a United supporter and I have a brother who's a United supporter. Yeah. But my brother and I have always had this very gentlemanly agreement that we never, ever take advantage of each other's humiliation. There's 7-0 by Liverpool. I've Not a word passed my mouth. The other two threw clocks at each other or cups of, of hot coffee across the room <laughs> at each other. It was quite extraordinary. One was a few years younger than my friend, and I'm seven years younger than my brother, so maybe there was an age problem. But there was a sense in which that family was much closer to the reality of the way people behave badly at derby matches. Colin, I prompted to tell the Johnny Manson story because that always makes me laugh. The Johnny Manson story is Johnny Manson lived next door to my parents' best friends. So I've known Johnny for, for some considerable time. He wasn't a close friend, but I, I'd known enough of him to know that he was a United supporter. There was a moment where I'd moved away from Manchester and came back and I went to synagogue for the first time for 40 years. I had to meet somebody at synagogue. That, that's why I went on Saturday morning. And it just so happened it was the week after City had beaten... United 5-1 in this extraordinary game in 89. And I saw Johnny Manson, a big smile. I hadn't seen him for so many years. And I said, hello, Johnny, nice to see you. To which Johnny Manson, who looking incredibly glum and rather hostile, not responding at all to the open genuineness of my greeting, replied, I knew you'd come on a day like this. <laughs> we haven't talked about, you know, the Sheffield Derby, but... The Sheffield Derby is different ends of town, isn't it? Yes. Uh, there are ones that are different ends of town. Yeah, the Sheffield Derby is fantastic. I mean, I mentioned at the yeah. outset the, the 4-0, which obviously Blades don't really like to dwell on. But there was 48,000 in the ground that day, and that was a third division match. Wow. A third division match. Okay, it was Boxing Day, but 48,500. And Terry Curran... I doubt if he's allowed to buy a drink in an Owls pub to this day. I think he only scored one out of the four, but he was man of the match. He laid on another two and, and everything. To his dying day, he'll be asked about that match. I mean, they're two great clubs. Sheffield's a proper football city. There are certain football cities you go to. Liverpool, obviously. Manchester, obviously. Glasgow, obviously. But for me, Sheffield's got that same passion. To an extent, it depends on, on how often the teams, you know, if they're in the same division. Well, they're often not. That's a good point. Exactly. If you want them all to be in the same division, you'd go for a modern London derby. Because London has what? If you include the occasional appearances of Watford, London can have about seven. And QPR and Brentford. Brentford haven't been in the top division for ages now. Brentford and Fulham are 
quite close, aren't they? They are. I mean, I'm, Fulham's my London club. And, and, and yeah. to be quite honest, a Man United fan at the start of the season saying, I bet you've marked in your diary when Man United are coming. I said, don't be silly. The only one I've marked is Brentford. Because we don't, <laughs> we don't look upon Chelsea as our equals, much bigger than us. But Brentford, you know, that really matters. And that's mm. a friendly mm. rivalry. I've got a friend who's got the away fans pub at Brentford. And it's a very nice gig because, you know, he's got the, the London Irish rugby fans and all that. When Fulham come, it's no segregation. He lets both home and away fans come in. It's quite a friendly derby, but by God, we care. Well, John mentioned that about Liverpool. The Liverpool derby was known as the friendly derby. Why would that be? They're not short of passion either side. Not sure they necessarily love each other, but they don't have the history of hatred that, say, Liverpool and Manchester United have. There were a lot of split families, weren't there, in Liverpool? Yeah, but McManaman was an Evertonian, and there were so many players played for the other side, from the and Carragher, and so on. You know, they had a different growing up process to the when they actually became a professional player. Part of the nature of Scousers, isn't it? That they us, are... us against the world. Yes, that's right. I think there's that nature. I want to end up with one final one because it's something that our esteemed producer, Paul, made clear to us. He's a Watford supporter and he feels strongly about Luton. But what he observes is that it's just nasty. It's become nastier. It's become unpleasant. Is this now the nature of Derby? Not I wear a blue rosette, you wear a red rosette. It's become the object of hatred has defined what a Derby match is. And Brighton and Palace has become similar, hasn't it? The Eagles, yes. And that's the, yeah. that's the Eagles M, and M23, but no, that's, that's yeah. up on a motorway, yeah. We've got the M69 derby, <laughs> the M23 derby. When the New York Yankees played the New York Mets in the World Series, it was always known as the subway derby. Yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. go good. from one that's to good. the other in, that, that's in good. that sort of that's, way. That's fine. But yeah. I think I'm wrapping up, unless somebody wants to Before say something. You, yeah, I'd like to say, do you mind yeah, if please, I... Please get, do. We've missed out one of the biggest derbies I've ever known, and it's not a club match. Scotland versus England. Began in 1872. Now, that's a derby. That is a derby. Of course, it's not such a big match now, and it's always played competitively. But, I mean, in its heyday, that was a perfect derby because the underdogs cared more. You'd get 140,000 at Hampden Park to see the English ground into the dust at Wembley, you'd get 90,000 out of 100,000 Scots hoping to see England ground into their own dust. So that was a derby and a half, that was. This is political. This is what John was saying about Barcelona and Real Madrid, yeah. the Scotland-England derby. What, you mean the, Hadri- the, Her- the Hadrian was wall derby? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the A1 derby, the A1. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's political. I mean, the Jacobite Rebellion and, and yeah. Edward I and, and everything and everything else. Yeah. And William Wallace and all that. I mean, that's what's at the bottom of that particular hatred. I don't think that's true of the urban derbies that we've been talking about. I think it's different. So derby has become almost slang for grudge match or big encounter. You could say the same about England-Germany football matches, yes, Paddy, yes, in recent years. But you could say that the words ashes and derby are interchangeable. The ashes is a derby. Correct. In the looser definition that yes. we now give to it. And you talk about horrible promotion of sporting events. When I see civilised cricketers being made to stare at each other before an ashes series, it turns my stomach. Oh, I hate it. This air sats. Rivalry, I, I can't stand it. I remember the Ryder Cup finishing 
on the 18th, well, whatever green it, it was, but it was at Kiowa Island. Was it 2000, yeah. around about that time? Oh, 1991 was Kiowa Island Ryder Cup when they were charging across the green before the match had finished. Because mm, yep. they'd got news that another game had finished in their favour and they yeah. were celebrating. And the European player hadn't even lined up his yeah. yeah. Contrast that with 1969, when Jack Nicholas conceded a very, very missable putt to Tony Jacklin yeah. with the words, I don't think I'd like anyone to miss that putt or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It was a wonderful, it's actually a wonderful televised moment, but... They didn't seem to see it that way then. It's all hype into making things more about confrontation. And if we're sort of concluding, I think the term Derby, why I'm indifferent to it is that it's, for me, become synonymous with the bits I don't like about football. Here's us three chatting about football and actually... The fact that you pretend to hate Manchester United, yet you told that story about Matt Busby, (laughs) and one of the best moments of your life. And to be honest, yeah, I will admit, when I was chairman of Leicester, we clinched, virtually clinched promotion by beating Forrest at home 1-0. A goal that was scored as a rarity. Trevor Benjamin, who never scored, scored the goal. And I never went in the dressing room or saw the manager after the game. I always thought it's best not to, because... Both of you are far too wound up emotionally. But that game, I did go down. I said to Mickey Adams, listen, for a Leicester fan to beat Forrest 1-0 and clinch promotion about as good as it gets. But, you know, I'd taken a couple of nodding Forrest fans who were my friends to the game and I enjoyed taking a mick about their rotten ground and everything else. But it was never that hostility that seems to have come in with derbies and, and so on. That's why perhaps I don't like the term Derby and why I didn't want to do this programme. <laughs> but I think we've raised a number of interesting issues, which is that, you know, amongst the others, there are political divides, there are religious divides. But significantly, I think John's point is that the influence of television and the shift from the bantering rivalry that was always there and is on fundamental part of a Derby atmosphere has shifted in recent years probably, as John says, by the the influence of television, into something that really makes me quite uncomfortable. I cannot believe that in 1963, City fans will be singing songs about the Munich disaster. Mm. I mean, it just simply Mm. would not have happened. So at the end of the day, we have to assume that you'll have to be able to talk to people on Monday morning. Mm. So whatever happens on Saturday afternoon, you have to be able to get on with people when you see them again, even if they wear different colours. And it's getting harder to do that because I think it's stoked by the media. I'm sorry, that's my rant. This is the football ruin my life entry for the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) (laughs) I think on that note, unless Paddy has something better. No, I can't stop that. We will say thank you to Paddy Barclay and thank you to John Holmes. And, And now for the first time, a proper thank you to our very esteemed producer, Paul Cobra. Without him, we wouldn't be here. Maybe the world would be better off without our three of us being here, but we're grateful for his efforts anyway. And if you wish to let us know what your opinion is, please write to footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time on Football Ruin My Life. Cheerio. Great. I thought that was quite good. There's enough there for Paul to get into. 
first time I've ever seen Paul blushing. <laughs> well, there was a lot of waving of arms going on. I wasn't quite yeah, sure what he was yes. saying. Oh, no, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm just a cog in the wheel. Yeah. <laughs>